One night, while conducting an evangelistic meeting in the Salvation Army Citadel in Chicago, a pastor named Booth Tucker preached on the sympathy of Jesus. After the message, a man approached him and said, If your wife had just died like my wife just did, and your babies were crying for their mother who would never come back, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. Tragically, a few days later, Tucker's wife was killed in a train accident, a train wreck. Her body was brought to Chicago and carried to that very same citadel that he had just preached at. And as the, at the services, the bereaved preacher looked down upon his silent wife. He turned to those who were attending and said, The other day a man told me I would not preach about the sympathy of Jesus if my wife had just died. If that man is here today, I want to tell him that Christ is sufficient. My heart is broken, but it has a song put there by Jesus. I want that man to know that Christ speaks comfort to me today. Now, this account I just mentioned was recorded in the devotional today in the Word. I thought this account showed the, the kindness and the comfort of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, he, he comforts the broken and the hurting. Uh, today's message that we're going to be in, Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17, it, it deals with a woman who is hurting and broken. She seemingly lost everything that mattered most to her, but Christ provides her with powerful comforting as well. Yet, as you'll see in a moment, in an amazingly miraculous way. So let's pray as we get started into this wonderful message. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your love. And also thank you for your kindness and comfort, for your compassion upon us, Lord. Uh, you, you realize that we are frail, and you love us anyway, and you love us through those weaknesses that we have. And so God, I pray that as we study your word today that we see you even deeper, uh, that as we study uh, this, this wonderful interaction that you're about to have uh, in the scriptures as, as we're going along with you here. Um, may it change us from the inside out. May, may we know you at an even deeper level than we've ever known you before. God, open up our hearts and minds to hear your word, to understand it, help your Holy Spirit to illuminate it, illuminate it in our lives. For us, that, for those of us here that may not be saved, may this be a message that brings us to a saving knowledge of you, Lord. We praise you, we thank you, we love you. Amen. So today we're going to see two difficult times in our lives that Christ provides powerful comfort. The first is Jesus offers powerful comfort to the hopeless, to the hopeless. I'm going to read verse 11 first. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So soon afterward, some manuscripts actually say the next day. Uh, it's debated as far as how long after this uh, amazing miracle that we talked about last week with the healing of the centurion servant from a distance occurred. That's really neither here nor there. But it's, but it's obvious that it's not too long after because there's this great crowd going with Jesus. Uh, and we see even in, in, the, in chapter 6 that he had just finished the Sermon on the Plain. There's a great crowd there. So this great crowd has been, been watching Jesus, listening to Jesus. Uh, we see the disciples kind of set apart in that group, but these other people are following somewhat at a distance, somewhat close as well. And this miracle is still fresh in their minds, and they're walking toward this great town, or this, this small town called Nain, as you'll see on the, the uh, map. You can go ahead and bring it up. So Capernaum to Nain, if you see Capernaum is right on the Sea of Galilee, just at the northern, northern side of that. 
You see the big balloon here. That's Nain. You're looking at about a 20 to 25 minute, or sorry, 20 to 25 mile trip, uh, about a day's journey in that time, maybe a little more uh, for some. And this small town, if you look as well, it's actually near Nazareth, um, where Jesus grew up. It's about six miles southeast of Nazareth. So as he goes to this small town, we see that this great crowd is with him, like we've just said, and they've just seen some amazing stuff. And so Luke, just like he did last week, he set up the setting, gave you an idea of what was going on, and then he just hits, it, hits the ground running. Usually that next verse, you just hear something, boom, here it goes. And so let's go ahead and get into 12, and we're going to see uh, the, the setting a lot more magnified. Verse 12, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, she was, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So as he drew near to the gate of the town, a man who had been died, who just died, was being carried out. But Luke gives us another detail that makes this a lot more sad. It's already sad that this man had died, but we're told that this is the only son of this mother. This is her only son. And then to make matters worse, she was a widow, so she'd lost her husband as well. So now she's lost her husband and her son. In those days, to today we would be extremely sad for, for a woman who had gone through both of these things. You know, losing your husband and losing your son would be devastating. But in this day, if you didn't have a male relative in your family, you were destined for poverty. It wasn't like today where you could go get a job and provide for yourself. Back then, that wasn't the case necessarily. And this is why, so, so this woman is hopeless. That's why I gave her that term, hopeless. So she, not only is she hopeless as far as she's lost what mattered most to her, she also is destitute and destined for poverty at this point. That's why Paul s teaches so intensely uh, on, in 1 Timothy 5 on taking care of widows. And we even see widows uh, to be taken care of even in the law of Moses as well. The gravity of this woman's situation is even felt by the people of Nain, as we saw. Uh, they, they understand this is a big deal. Uh, theologian Kent Hughes says the following, and it really kind of gives us a taste of what she was experiencing at the time. This large crowd posed an ironic contrast to her actual state. She was alone in this world without a provider and without a protector. Tomorrow she would awake by herself, brokenhearted, without the sustaining footfall and sounds of her beloved son. So this woman had likely actually just lost her son that very day that they were carrying him out. Uh, back then, uh, dead bodies were ceremonially unclean. So that means they couldn't be buried within the confines of the city. And, and they would oftentimes, after a period of mourning, they would take them out of the city. So the funer this funeral procession that's taking place is likely the same day of this young man's death. So this procession is moving outside of the walls of the town of Nain to bury this young man. And it's at this moment that Jesus enters the scene in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep. We get another glimpse into the humanity of Jesus this week as well. Uh, last week we saw Jesus marvel or be amazed at this centurion's amazing faith. And now we see Jesus have compassion on this widow who has lost her son and lost her husband before. The Greek word for compassion is a heartfelt, deep, gut-like love. It's a vis visceral emotion, emotion that's so strong that it usually brings on a physical effect. However, the words that Jesus speaks, he said to her, what? Do not weep. And it makes you scratch your head. If anybody has the right to weep, this woman has the right to weep. She's lost her husband, and now she's lost her one and only son. She's hopeless. She's destined for destitution. 
And I could imagine the crowd that's listening that's around there mourning with her and, and trying to support her in her mourning is ready to pounce on Jesus at this point. Like, what are, what are you saying, Jesus? Now, they could have brought up David, a man after God's own heart, who weeped continuously in the Psalms over and over and over again. We even see him weep over his wicked son Absalom, who tried to kill him, and weep over King Saul, both of the, uh, who, the evil King Saul who had died in 2 Samuel 19 and 2 Samuel 1. It wasn't even biblical to weep and to mourn. And the psalmist, uh, David again, actually says this in Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And uh, we even see Jesus weeps in uh, John eleven thirty five. But Jesus knows something that nobody else there knows at the time. This is not a time for weeping. Let's see what he's about to do. So number two, Jesus offers powerful comfort to the helpless. And there are two helpless persons that we're going to mention in the second point. The first is the helpless young man that is dead in substance. The helpless young man that is dead in substance. Let's read the first part of verse 14. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. So let's stop midway there. At this point in our account, the young man is what? He's dead. Yeah, everything seems hopeless. Everything, you know, now this man is, is seriously helpless, right? And I, I use this word in substance because he's substantially dead. He's not breathing. There's no heartbeat. Everyone understands this man is dead. There are pallbearers who are carrying him at this point as, outside of the city. He is utterly helpless. Actually, if you look at this account, all of the people, all the characters in this account, all of the people in this, there is no one more helpless than this man. He is the, he is the least helpless that is present at this time and even more so than the woman who seems very hopeless as well. And this, this young man lies on what's called a beer here, and, and it's a stretcher of sorts, uh, and it would be, uh, usually be a stretcher with handles that people would carry, and then he would be wrapped in cloths and linens. But just when all seems hopeless and helpless for the mother and this young man, that Jesus steps into the situation. To be sure, it's likely that the pallbearers at this funeral had heard of Jesus. This, this place, if we remember, we saw Nazareth. Nazareth was only six miles from Nain. Word had most likely gotten to this place. So they see Jesus walk in. They understand this guy's a miracle worker. He's done some pretty crazy things. So they freeze. We see they stood still. They, they froze. And, and, but, but they're freezing for another reason as well, not just because they're a little intimidated because Jesus has come into the scene and word already went out pretty good about him, but they freeze because what does it say that he did? He came up and touched the beer. Now, so touch the stretcher, maybe a, a better term for us to understand. So they come and he touches the stretcher, and for us, we're like, that's kind of weird. But, but for us, we'd be like, why, why are they freezing there? Why would they freeze because of that? Well, you have to realize that this is under the, the Old Covenant at this point. And, and what did the Old Covenant teach about dead people? They were unclean because it reminded God of death, and death reminds God of sin, and it's all it's unholy. Uh, death wasn't the design. Life was the design. Death is what happened because of Adam's sin. And so we see in Numbers 19, verse 11, it says, Whoever touches the, the, touches the dead body of any person shall be clean, unclean how long? Seven days. That's a whole week. So Jesus has just come up and touched this beer and made himself unclean for a week. And so they're sitting there like, dude, 
I guess you're going to stay outside the city gates, right? I mean, I guess that's where. And then number uh, 1916, right after that, says whoever in an open field, which is probably where they're at, right outside of the city as they're going through the gates, uh, or someone who is killed with a sword or died naturally or touches a human bone or grave shall be unclean. How long? Seven days. We've got a week. So these men probably didn't know what to do at the time. They're this holy and renowned rabbi, Jesus Christ, this miracle worker, you know, the Pharisees of that day, they weren't going to touch that. They weren't going to go anywhere near that funeral procession. They were too holy. They were too good. But Jesus is different. He comes and he touches the beer. How, what was Jesus thinking? These, these guys are probably just, just completely, their minds are blown at what is happening at this time. And my friends, we need to understand that there is a great foreshadowing in this account that most people miss when they read it. He was willing to touch the beer or the stretcher for us as well, my friends. He was willing to become unclean for us. He stepped down and was born of a virgin. And, and he was put in a manger. Talk about an unclean place. He, he was put in a feeding trough for animals. He was willing to touch, reach into the throes of death for us in order to bring us new life. He took the death and the wrath for sin that we deserved on the cross. And we have a, such a mighty Savior who has sacrificed so greatly for us. And I pray that, that, that you've responded to him reaching and touching the beer, reaching and touching the stretcher, the stretcher where you lied dead in your sins, where you died motionless, where you, where you were hopeless and helpless, and he resurrected your soul. I pray that you've done that, and if you haven't, he's willing to touch the stretcher. He's willing to touch your life and make it new. How great is our God. All you need to do is repent or turn away from your sins and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Isn't his kindness and compassion amazing, as we see in this account? So getting back to our verse, we'll finish uh, verse 14 here. He explains why this widow from Nain should not weep, but this is a time of rejoicing, as we're going to see. He says this, And he said... Young man, I say to you, arise. You know, we read that and we're like, oh, it's Jesus. He does some cool things like that. Like, dude, this is a huge deal. Like, sometimes we get desensitized. We've heard Bible accounts. We know Jesus rose from the dead. So it's like, dude, he rose himself from the dead. I'm pretty sure he can raise this guy. So we get kind of desensitized to how great this is. You know, how, how amazing this is that he tells this guy that's been dead for, for a while, hours most likely, um, to, to just get up. And I, I think, I think we've we got to make sure we don't just get desensitized to it and understand just how big of a deal this is. And the people there, like just how this would have blown their minds. Nobody tells a dead body to get up. And he does. And I, I'm actually really amazed, and maybe I just think a little bit differently, but, but I'm just amazed that these pallbearers are able to stand there. Like, you know, I mean, as we're going to get there, I mean, it's just, just amazing that they're able to, 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 do, to do that and, and not do anything too crazy. But, but, but we see, I, I think before we get that to that point, we're going to get to that in a second. I want us to talk about Jesus's miracles and his, his resurrection power as well. So most of the time when Jesus would heal someone, a lot of times he would do a physical something. Like, you know, he would put mud, mix it with spit, which was kind of gross, and put it, on, put it on the guy's eye and then he could see, or he would lay his hands on somebody. But here we just see he just speaks the word. And, and oftentimes when someone's healed, we actually see that their faith was a part of that. Like, you know, they believed, and so they were healed. They believed. But we have to know that, that, that God's healing, Jesus' healing, is beyond your faith. It, it's it's, it's no, no merit of your own. It's not because you're better or greater. It, it's, it's by grace 
through faith. But, but even then, he can give grace and give faith as a gift. And here we don't, we don't see this woman ask him to raise her son from the dead. We obviously don't see this young man say, hey, bring me back. That's not a part of this account, right? But, so, so this is a wonderful parallel for us. When God resurrects sinful men and women and kids from spiritual death to spiritual life, he does it by his great glory and power. Yes, we must repent and believe there is an element of human responsibility. Absolutely. We must respond to the free gift of eternal life. But we must know that there is no human work involved in salvation or healing of any type. It is only by grace through faith. Uh, we, when we look at the Bible, actually Jesus says this twice in the same uh, chapter, John chapter 6, just to kind of let us know that, that we don't save ourselves, that, that God does this. No one can come to me, meaning Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The same chapter, just a little further in verse 65, he says it again, and he said, this is, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So Jesus reiterates this point twice in this small section of Scripture, in the same section of Scripture. We don't choose God. God chooses us. While we were still dead in our sins, Christ died for us. While we were enemies of God, the Bible calls us in the book of Romans, enemies of God, not even just indifferent. There, are, there is no one who's indifferent. People, there is no relig religious neutrality. We are either enemies of God or we're adopted sons and daughters of God. And we, we see that his salvation is not based on our merit, not based on how good that we are. He didn't save Jonathan because Jonathan was worth saving. No, he saved Jonathan because of his great grace and his mercy. And, and we need to see ourselves as that and see him as great as he is. Yes, I had to respond to that and I had to repent of my sins and turn to him, but I could have never done that apart from his miraculous work in my life and his drawing to me. And this young man that was raised, we, we have to see another important thing about God's sovereign work in this. Uh, we, we, we see God's providence at work in this account. I mean, just, just think, let, let's go ahead and learn what providence is first, and then we'll kind of address what has just happened. So providence is defined here. I think it's on the next slide there. You don't have to write this down. I think it's in your handout. It says, the divine governance whereby all possible events are woven into a coherent pattern and all possible developments are shaped to accomplish the divinely instituted goal. Is that not a difficult definition? That's a hard thing to say. Welcome to seminary. There you go. Uh, that, that's what the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia says. I'm going to put that in layman's terms. You ready for this? It's, the, it's not just the foresight of God. So God does see everything ahead of time. And people will talk about the foreknowledge or the foresight of God, that he knows everything from beginning and end. He does because he's present in the beginning and end all at the same time. He's transcendent. He's not limited by time and place. But what it, what it says is that the sovereign, uh, the sovereign actions of God, they orchestrate what he has planned to happen. Uh, this is this doctrine of providence. Just think about the exact opposite of chance and faith, uh, or chance and fate. Most people in today's world kind of look at God as, as the, the clockmaker, the watchmaker, winds it up, lets it go. Like that's a, people say things like karma. Oh, it's just karma, which is a pagan, actually, religion. So we got to watch how we use that. Uh, people will say, oh, you know, it's by chance, or it's by luck, or it's by this. And people say those things in common language in America, and most of us, we don't say it in a spiritual way, but it actually is. When, when we talk like that and we say, oh, I just have bad luck, you know, it's just 
chance. It's just fate. You know, it's just what was meant to be. These kind of things. It, it undermines the divine providence of God. That God is all sovereign, all knowing. That He's controlling everything from the beginning to the end. He's bringing about His purposes and His will, and He acts on everything either directly, like Saul of Tarsus, who become, you know, who's Paul, uh, and writes most of the New, a lot of the New Testament at least. Uh, he obviously stepped in directly to blind Paul and to save his soul, or indirectly. We see him work throughout all of that. So I, I want us to understand that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they're super difficult to tease out, that we must repent, that we must p- place our trust in him. But may we never negate God's sovereignty and his providence and his control over that. We must understand that he is. And, and we see this just here as well. Jesus just so happens to be walking to this town at the time that this man has just so happened to be carried out of this town to stage what's about to happen. Do you think this was an accident? I think it was just a coincidence, fate, chance. That No, this was the providence of God planned from the beginning of creation that Jesus would do this. How amazing is our God. That, that even this insignificant widow who nobody knew in this insignificant town that we only have a little bit of archaeological evidence for because it was destroyed. At you're looking, I mean, now it's called N-E-I-N, they think. It's a, spelled a little bit differently. In this, you know, just forsaken area, nobody cares about it, that Jesus is going there. Why is he going there? Who goes to Nain? It wasn't like, oh, let's all go to Nain and hang out. No, this was a place that people just didn't go to. Nazareth, which was a bigger city than Nain, is spoken of as, could anything good come from Nazareth, right? We see that in the scriptures. Uh, So isn't this amazing to see God and his sovereign control? It's just amazing. We've already alluded to this, but let's see what happens after Jesus' command in Luke 7, 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Again, we kind of alluded to this too, but so these pallbearers, they're, they're walking and then they freeze. Jesus touches the beer. They're freezing in multiple ways right now, miracle worker and unclean miracle worker now, and they're just standing there like, what's going on? Jesus just said, arise. It says the young man gets up and what's he do? He begins to speak. Like this dead guy is talking. And if you think about it, like there were probably some cloths over him. So he's like sitting up. He's probably pulling these cloths off his head. Like what is going on? Why am I on the stretcher? And, and he just starts talking like nothing happened. And I'm just, I'm really amazed by these pallbearers. Like what would you do if you're carrying this young man out of the city? You know, he's a big strapping young, young guy carrying, carrying him. And the guy that you're carrying that's been dead for hours starts talking. I'm letting go. Like, I'm like, dude, see you later. Like, I'm dropping that thing because this is, this is pretty freaky. Like, this is something a little bit different. I mean, wouldn't you? Would you just be like, oh, this is normal? Yeah. Every funeral procession I have, somebody just sits up and starts talking to me. No, I mean, I'm just amazed this guy didn't end up dying again just because they threw him or something, you know, ended up breaking his neck because they, so I'm just amazed. God also, you know, look, Jesus is giving them a supernatural peace at this point to be able to just stand there. Reminds me of Balaam and his donkey as we had a, had a couple of weeks ago too, that like Balaam's just chilling on his donkey as it talks to him and talking back to him like nothing happened. Like it's just, just, some, just pretty cool to kind of see, see those. I don't know if we would respond the same way as these guys have. Um, but, but you look and then it says that Jesus gave him to his mother. You know, we just read that, and, but could you imagine that interchange? Th- th- this, this woman who had no hope, this son who was helpless, he was dead, now they're united, and this woman's like, wow, 
My life has been given back to me. I have hope. I'm not going to have to be des- you know, destitute. I- I'm going to have a provider and a protector who will care for me. I mean, it's just t- such a beautiful account of the miraculous work and compassion of Jesus Christ. And again, we see here that Jesus is truly man and truly God. We see his deity and his manhood all together here working hand in hand. So we've seen Jesus offer powerful comfort by resurrecting a dead man who was helpless and comforting a mother who was hopeless. And finally, we see, the, we see Jesus offer this powerful comfort to those who are dead in spirit. So the helpless people watching that are dead in spirit, part B here. Let me read verse 16. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. Wow. I mean, I, I say dead in spirit because they don't understand who Jesus is. Like, they don't really get it. And, and so, uh, at first, we see that they're incredibly fearful at first, and it says that fear sees them, and, and there's a big word for this. It's called anthropomorphism, which just means it gives human-like characteristics to something else that's not like an inanimate thing or like fear. Fear can't grab you, right? Fear's a th- not really a thing. But So what this does, but these people feel like fear is grabbing them. Uh, they, they feel like it's choking them, that it's squeezing them. They're, they're scared to death, literally. Um, taking their breath away would maybe be a good way to put it. But once they gather themselves, they give two statements. And the first one is, the, the first is that they refer to Jesus as a great prophet. A great prophet. We all know that Jesus is certainly greater than the prophets of the Old Testament. He, he's much greater. He's fully divine. He's God made flesh, but they call him a great prophet. They, they compare him probably to Elijah or Elisha, who also raised a dead person, we mentioned in our growth group this morning, 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4, respectively. Yet Jesus is much greater than the great prophets of old. Jesus did not raise this young man by the power of another. He raised this young man by his own power. Elisha and Elijah both raised a person through the power of God, not through their own abilities or powers. So Jesus is even showing kindness to this crowd he doesn't have a clue who he really is. They just think he's another Elijah or Elisha. And he will continue teaching a more accurate understanding of his deity throughout his ministry. However, many still don't understand fully, even his own disciples, it seems like, until after he is resurrected. And we mentioned their first statement already, but the second is this. The second is that they state that God has visited his people. And at first glance, if you haven't really studied this that hard, you'd be like, well, don't they understand that he's God? That he's the Messiah? It says God has visited his people. Doesn't that sound pretty good? I mean, Emmanuel, God with us, that's the Messiah, another name for the Messiah. But this was actually a common Old Testament saying. If you look back in Exodus 4.31, the Lord had visited the people of Israel. Ruth 1.6, the Lord had visited his people and given them food. If you look at the next verse there over. Uh, so, so it was more of a, he's blessed the people. It's saying, you know, if the Lord, the Lord has visited me. That wasn't really mean the Lord came in the flesh and visited you. It just meant the Lord had blessed Israel at that point. And we see, they called him a great prophet, which is, stands in contrast of the Messiah. They wouldn't call the Messiah a great prophet. They would call the Messiah the Son of God, uh, as we kind of see here. So they, this crowd has no idea the magnitude of Jesus' power and glory and who he really is. They, don't under, they understand that he was from God, but they don't understand that he is God himself. Let's move to this last verse. Uh, I, I feel, feel some conviction for our church in America today. 
Uh, see what these people who didn't even have an adequate understanding of Jesus Christ did. So let's read this last verse. And this report about him spread through the whole region, or the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Brothers and sisters, they went out and did what? They told every single person just about that they knew and that they ran into what just happened. And who did they tell them about? Jesus, right? They told everybody that they knew about Jesus and what he did. He raised a dead man, a, a guy who was laying there for hours, and then he gets up and sits up and on the stretcher and starts talking. Like, and they, so they're going and telling everybody about this. Wouldn't that be great for us today? Wouldn't it be great if we all did the same thing? Like, so, so he, here's the issue that, that really hits me hard. The, these people have no idea that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, they've seen him do something great, but haven't we? We might not have seen him raise a physical dead person, but how many people in your life have you seen saved that were destined for hell, but their life was resurrected? They, they went from dead to life. You just saw a complete 180 of their life. They were the most horrible person to be around you've ever been around. And all of a sudden, man, they're just loving on people, giving them hugs, saying, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Dude, that's a resurrection. That's resurrection power working, and we have seen it time and time again, and we don't tell anybody. Uh, not, I shouldn't say everybody here, so there are some that do, but many uh, people in the American church don't tell, tell anybody about it. And here, here we are, so hopefully everyone here, are saved, born-again believers with the Holy Spirit inside of us. We ourselves have been raised. We're like the young man. We should go tell everybody, hey, I was raised. I was dead. I was laying on a stretcher. He told me to get up. Well, dude, we were dead and our sins destined for hell. And he told us to get up like Lazarus. He told us to come out of that grave. How amazing is that? Here are these probably still pagans going around telling everybody about Jesus. They, they, they don't even understand who God really is. How amazing is that? And, and there's just, as I was looking at this, I saw some, some quotes by Dr. Tom Rayner, who's a leading church researcher and writer and former CEO at Lifeway, and I just started thinking, wouldn't it be nice, I mean, we look at Jesus's life after this, we're going to see further along this gospel that it gets so crazy, so many crowds start coming that he can't even find time to pray. Like, he is struggling to, to get away. He has to go up on mountaintops. He has to literally walk on water to get away from people. I mean, like, it, I mean, it's pretty, pretty incredible. Wouldn't it be great if we had to do that? Like, the, we had so many people we had to disciple that we had a hard time getting our quiet time in. Like, oh, man, you know, I just, I had to disciple 15 people yesterday. I don't have enough time for this. Like, wouldn't that be amazing? I know we don't have the power over salvation, but, but we do have the power over sharing the gospel. And listen to these right here. 82% of the unchurched are at least somewhat likely to attend church if, the, if you invite them. 82%. I mean, that's like atheists, agnostics, people that are even other religions may be willing to come and sit here and hang out just to see what it's all about. The next one, only 2%, let's say that again, 2%, uh, is it up there? Yeah, uh, only 2% of the church members, or of church members in, in a given church, invite an unchurched person to the church. This is in a given year. 98% of churchgoers never extend an invitation in a given year. Now, I'm blessed to know that, that many of you are not part of that statistic. Um, this statistic becomes a lot harder as churches get older. It becomes a lot more laissez-faire and, oh, whatever, you know, we're not going to. But in a given year, 
in the American church, 98% of people aren't inviting anyone to church. I mean, how, how awful is that? And then the, probably the most sad quote of all was in Tom Rainer's book called Back to Church. He says this, Seven out of ten unchurched people have never been invited to church in their whole lives. They're in America. This is American church. This is not Islamic territory. This is not the, you know, the, 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 the plains or savannas of Africa. We're talking about in America. We have seven out of ten unchurched people, unbelievers, that have never been invited to even go to church. I get it's hard to share the gospel with people. It takes practice. It's, it's scary. I, I get that. I'd love to help train you. We had an evangelistic training. We're going to do another one of those as well. We'll work with you. I'll work with you personally if you need help. Like, we will sit down and we will go through the gospel, and you can share it with me. You can share, I can ask you hard questions and put you on the spot. We have other people we can plug you in with, too, to do the same thing. I get it. Now, there's no excuse. We still need to be doing it. It's a command from God, Matthew 28. But how hard is it to say, hey, we'd love to have you come to church with us. If, you know, here's where we're at. Here's what time we meet. Is that really that difficult? That's not that hard. But what keeps us from doing that? And some of us do a great job at that, so I don't want to be too hard on all of you. But the American church is obviously not. And so we have friends and family that, that are not doing that as well. And I understand that there's no guarantee that somebody's going to come to church. I understand that these statistics are, are imperfect, that they change in time, that, 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 that maybe you're not going to see the same thing there. I know I've invited a lot of people that haven't come. And I'm, I know you all have invited a lot of people that haven't come, but we don't stop. We continue to invite, especially when seven out of ten out there have never even been invited to church. I, I do know that 80-some percent of our county is unchurched. 80-some percent. This is conservative West Virginia, Bible Beltish kind of place. Like, this is super, and 80-some percent of our county doesn't go to church. I mean, just, just amazing statistics. But some of us have other reasons we're not. Maybe because we have fear of man. What are they going to say? Are they going to look at me as a bigot? Or are they going to, you know, is this going to make it awkward, right? My neighbor, we get along pretty well. You know, he even mowed my lawn one time, but I know he's an atheist. So I can't invite him to church. He may not be as nice to me anymore, right? It may be uncomfortable. Or maybe we need to care more about their soul than we care about our own comfort, right, friends? Like, we need to know that. Or is it because we're spiritually lazy? I mean, let's be honest. Like, the American lazy culture has worked its way into the church, and we just want to be served. We just want to be fed. I'm, I'm, I praise God that that's not where, where our church is. We have a lot of people that serve and that do all kinds of things for each other. But in a lot of churches, you go in them, and there's like 10% of people do everything. The other 90% just come, sit down, never serve, never get involved. But do we care more about our, our personal comfort? We need to get off our backsides and get in the game. There's no bench warmers in Christianity. Read the book of Acts. There's no you know, melancholy, marginal, nominal Christian. They're all sold out for Jesus. That's our call. Or is it because you're too busy? You know, a lot of us, we pack our schedules with so much stuff that our priorities get, get messed up. Now, why, why are we storing all these treasures up on earth where we know moth and rust are going to destroy? They're not going to last whenever we can store heavenly treasures. I always tell, I tell a lot of people this. You can't take anything with you to heaven other than other people. It's the only thing you can take to heaven. You can't take your car. You can't take your house. You can't take anything you own, but you can take other people with you. You can share the gospel. So we need to invest in things that we know are going to be eternal. One of the easiest ways to start sharing the gospel and inviting people to church is just to start doing it in your normal rhythms, where you're at, family, friends, school, work, wherever you're at, just start doing it. You know, you don't have to change your life. Just start 
being real with people, saying, hey, we'd love to have you, ball fields, wherever you're at. And friends, this, this crowd that we just talked about, they don't have good theology. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They're not saved. And yet they're able to do some amazing things by spreading the news of Jesus Christ. I know that we can. I know that we can do better. I know that we can spread that news even more. When I was called to ministry, I still remember this, this day, and I looked at my wife, and I'm not a crier, but this day God really moved on me as he called me to, to be a preacher, to be a pastor, and I just started crying, and all I could say was one thing, and it's super simple, and it's super simple, but I just want you to kind of think about this and, and make this maybe a theme of your life as well. It's not just for pastors, not just for preachers. People are going to hell, and someone needs to tell them about Jesus. Church, that someone needs to be us. We're so quick to say somebody needs to do something about that. Somebody needs to step in and serve there. Well, somebody's you, and that somebody's me. We need to step up. We need to be in the game. I started off today's message talking about Pastor Booth Tucker and the sympathy he experienced for Christ after losing his wife. It's, it's highly unlikely you're going to see your loved one raised from the dead on this side of eternity. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's very unlikely that, that you're going to see that person raised. But I can promise you this, Christ is near to the brokenhearted. Some of us have things in our lives that break our hearts. Some of us have went through times where we've lost loved ones, where we have things that are different struggles in our lives. But I can promise you this, you lean on the sturdy and solid rock, namely Jesus Christ. He is immovable, and he offers compassion and comfort to the broken and to the hurting. He is dependable and faithful. He never lets us down. And he has compassion on us as we struggle and as we suffer. And in the same vein, there are so many out there in our communities here throughout the whole world that are hopeless and helpless. There are so many that are experiencing the heartache and things we've went through, or maybe even worse, but they don't have a solid rock. They have no hope, and they have no helper. They have no Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, one of the other names for the Holy Spirit, is helper. It's directly what it, what it, what it means. He, he is our, our helper, capital H. Share the good news of the gospel with them. Let them know that there's hope. Let them know that there is a helper that will come live inside them, and let them know that there is a living Christ, or living hope, and that is Jesus Christ, as 1 Peter 1, 3 states. Let us pray, church. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your compassion upon the hurting and the broken and your comfort that you offer to us. The, the Paracletos, the, the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our helper. You are our ever-present help in time of need. And God, we thank you for being that. And God, we, th we, we just pray that you continue to, to help us through anything we may be struggling with personally. If, there, if anyone here is struggling through something, I'd love to talk with you and to pray with you about it. God, we just know that, that you are good and holy and wonderful, that you never let us down, that you're always there for us. But God, we know that there are so many in our world, countless, countless millions and billions even of lost souls that have no hope and they have no helper. God, may you embolden us and help us to have a heart for others to, to share the gospel and invite them to church and to talk to you, talk to them about how great you are. We love you, praise you, and thank you. May you forever be honored. In all glory and honor and praise. Amen.